Hello, I'm Sam Clements, and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picture House podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. And on this April edition of the show, it's a packed edition, folks. This is our monthly review podcast where we look at some of the highlights of films coming to your local picture house and maybe have the odd interview or two on this podcast. It is the latter with some visiting filmmakers or actors or or whatnot. We've got some really great people coming up on the show. My job here really is to be the MC, to run the admin of the podcast, to point out the fire escapes, where the toilets are, and very happy uh, if you'd like any concessions. I'll nip over to the kiosk. I'll grab you a popcorn. On every episode of the podcast, we are joined by two visiting film critics, two guest film reviewers, uh, to take you through the main features, the feature presentations uh, that we will be covering First up, we are joined by Ashanti Omkar, a wonderful freelance film critic, broadcaster, presenter, interviewer. You may see her on the television, you may hear her on radio, and you will definitely hear her on this podcast talking about our upcoming releases. Joining Ashanti is Victoria Luxford. Now, Victoria is making her debut on the Picture House podcast, but not a debut with Picture House itself, because if you read our magazine, Picture House Recommends, Victoria is one of of our regular writers in the magazine always a good read so do pick up your copy of pitch house recommend you can read victoria and so many other people's uh, wonderful work in there but yeah victoria and ashanti will be covering our april releases right that's it from me that's the admin oh we've got two interviews coming up as well so what we're going to do is we're going to run through the film reviews but after certain reviews there will be an interview with uh, the directors actually we're joined by two directors on this month's podcast so uh, the first film that victoria and Ashanti will be discussing is Mia Hansen-Luver's new film One Fine Morning and uh, we're actually joined by Mia Hansen-Luver to talk about her film right after as well so after the review you'll hear Lillian Crawford who was one of our guest critics a few months ago talking to the wonderful writer-director Mia Hansen-Luver about her film One Fine Morning. Oui, c'est moi. Il a des problèmes de santé. Ah bon J'espère que c'est pas trop grave. Pardon. Au revoir. So, Shanti, we've just seen One Fine Morning. What did you think? Wow. Uh, I was really, really taken in by this movie, One Fine Morning. Mia Hansen Love. She's been doing some some really, really good work. And she's been on my radar for quite a while. And it's really interesting because I was just on the series Mania Jury in, in France. And I watched a lot of French stuff. So I got back to London and then straight went into One Fine Morning. So it, it kind of kept the French vibes going. And I love how meticulous the detail was in this film. And, and uh, my gosh, Leah Sado, she is absolutely magnificent I, I, in everything she's done. Seeing Leah Sado in uh, Blue is the Warmest Colour, she drew us in to that character. And she does that every time. She's such a versatile actress. And in this case, where she's raising, you know, you see her as a mother, she's raising her young daughter. She works as an interpreter. And there she is with her, her father and everything he's going through, kind of losing sight, losing his memory, and, you know, having to move into assisted living. These are all very difficult things that you know many people go through in life with their parents and when she has this romantic relationship with Clement 
<laughs> that was just, uh, you know, just kind of added a little bit of joy to what she had as her life, which was very, you know, it was a very tough life. She was going through it with almost a smile at all times. How about you? What did you, what did you think? I completely agree. I think Mia Hansen-Love's sort of naturalistic style as a filmmaker is so perfectly suited to the heavy subject matter that you mentioned there. I think she never asks us to feel too maudlin or feel too sorry for anyone involved on screen. It's very much a sort of slice of life drama. It is very much sort of these are the way things are and people find joy and pain often in the same day, in the same hour as they go between um, different experiences. And I think that's a real talent of hers as a filmmaker to show where the, the the beauty and 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 the pain of life kind of exists side by side and as you say Leah Sido just so wonderful in the lead and I think just an ability to go from very light and very I suppose passionate scenes to uh, scenes where she's very vulnerable and torn and obviously very affected by her character's father's condition. I just thought it was a really strong performance and uh, and a pleasure to watch. Absolutely. I, I feel like there will be some awards buzz around this this film, particularly for, for that performance, because we, we get to see this. Once in a while, you have a film like The Father that comes out, you know, and, and you see those performances and they remind you of you know the the minutiae of life and that's exactly what's been captured in this absolutely you mentioned the father there i think dealing with neurodegenerative conditions can be I, I suppose not the most appetizing of subjects if you are just looking at something on paper but this is something that, that is part of life and i think when dealt with sensitively it can make for really good cinema and that's exactly what happens here it's not just about what the father's going through but what the family's going through celebrating the man they know even as that you know perhaps as he remembers himself that person begins to unravel a very rich and detailed plot as we see Leicido just finding solace in this new relationship but also the difficulty in her family life. As I say, the balance of the beautiful and the very painful is so well orchestrated. I really enjoyed it. Same here, same here. I can highly recommend this one. Also a beautiful watch on the big screen. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before. So that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Hello, Mia. Thank you so much for joining us for the Picture House podcast. I absolutely love all of your films. Thank I first you. saw Goodbye First Love when I was a teenager, and I've seen all of them many times ever since. And it meant a lot to see One Fine Morning now, particularly after Bergman Island, which felt like a sort of return to the earlier way of making films. Is that how you feel about it? Was it a sort of return to an earlier way of making them after that film? Yes, it did. It felt like going home. 
not something that I wanted to actually, but something I had to. It's how I felt about the film when I started uh, working on it. I had been away uh, a lot in the last years. I had been in India making a film, writing it, filming it, and then I went to uh, to Foro uh, many years in a row actually, because the film was made uh, in two different summers uh, due to production problems. So I ended up being away a lot and uh, somehow when I went back to my desk and asked myself what I wanted to do, I, it's not really that I chose to write that film but I felt I had to deal with experiences that were very close to me, somehow painful but somehow also happy. There were actually two opposite movements one that had to do with grief and one with happiness, with the joy, with new new love, the possibility of being happy. I realized that I just, there was this film that I had to do, there was no other way. I just had to confront those emotions. Absolutely. And those emotions have been going throughout your films. And it seems to me that there's an arc of sort of progression in the life of, of women from teenage years and childhood up to where you are in your life now. Is that how you conceive of your films, as sort of mirroring your own aging, I suppose? Yes, you're right. It's not not something that I wanted, though. It just <laughs> happened, I guess. Uh, I've always made films inspired by things I knew somehow, experiences. Not always, they were not all autobiographical at all, because actually most of my films are not. Most of them are inspired by people who I've known, people close to me who I love. But if we talk about autobiography, meaning films that would be really inspired by my own life, personal own life, there were maybe just two. One would be Goodbye First Love, or well, three if we count <laughs> Bergman Island, but I've made eight films. So mm. some of my films have characters that look very close to myself. Some others don't, and they have main characters who are male figures, uh, uh, or a woman who is older, Or but I always have the same empathy for the characters. Mm. And yes, in some ways, all of my films are some kind of diaries to me. I, you know, I don't write journals yeah. like some people do. I wish I, I, I would, but uh, uh, I am always afraid of losing memory like my father has. Yeah. My father has lost his memory because of his disease. But I've, even when I was 18 years old, I was always obsessed with passing of time and losing memory, mm. especially losing the memory of the presence of the people who we have loved and who are not here anymore. For me, making films is, is a way to keep mm. the trace of, of the people who I love. Mm, absolutely. So the films are in themselves sort of the, the diaries and catharsis perhaps to this film in particular in, in sort of processing what's happening with your, with your father and, and your experiences. Yes, totally. There is, mm. there is a cathartic, although in a way you could say it's always an illusion. You make a film because you think by making the film you will make this person who is gone alive again somehow mm. which is an illusion because the person who is gone is gone but still while you're doing this for me it's very helpful it heals uh, some wounds i think mm. in the case of this film right after i wrote it my father 
died from COVID. It was all very brutal. And I think if I had uh, waited just a couple of months more to write that film, I would, I would never have written it because I think uh, I would not have found the strength to look back at this moment. I think also the time of the pandemic would have taken the whole space in my memory. So I'm glad that I wrote the film when he was still there and then when I could still feel his presence. Do you find it difficult now, sort of talking about the film and seeing it being shown or, or is it... Is there a positivity to it for you? No, I, I, I find it, honestly, I find it extremely consoling mm. to, to, and I feel very privileged actually that I could, that I was able to write the film and turn this dramatic or dark memories into some story that hopefully some other people can connect with. Although, again, the film is not only about Sandra's relationship to her sick father, it's also about possible new love in her life, mm, a new encounter, absolutely. and how life surprises us, you know, at moments where we think it's so dark and there is no hope, and that's the, is that the truth about life? And then life sometimes surprises us and gives us the possibility of being happy again. So I think the film also deals with that. I wondered, in terms of sort of casting Lea Seydoux in this film, as a sort of double of yourself, what, what made you cast her in, in the role as, as Sandra? What, what did you see in her performances and her acting that made you want to cast her in this? There is this thing about her that everybody sees is her charisma, her glamour, mm. how sexy she is, right. how powerful on screen. And of course, I'm sensitive to that too. Mm. But I think that's another thing that's maybe less obvious that I'm that, but I am as sensitive to it. It's, and it has to do with some, um, fragility or vulnerability or a certain sadness that that she carries with her or at least that she knows how to express in an incredible way as an actress i mean everyone carries some sadness at some point you know but leah it's like as if she had some kind of direct access to this mm. i find her so unaffected on screen in my film but in films in general I've been impressed by her presence on screen for a long time because of the simplicity of her acting, the minimalism of her acting. She never overacts. It's never too sophisticated. I mean, she looks, mm. people think she's very sophisticated because of the fashion, mm. sh publicity, things that she does. And also she's been in films where she was playing very uh, glamorous. Uh, yeah. Like James Bond. That yeah, kind of thing. but uh, but actually, when you film her, mm. uh, Leah, she she she's very raw, and uh, I love that thing about her. That mixture of rawness of strength. She has something almost uh, masculine about her, right. and on the other hand, she's uh, extremely sensitive. Sometimes uh, you film her in a scene, and she cries in the scene, but not even because you ask her. She's not trying, just because. Be because she's moved by the other character. You know, she, she leaves the scene with an innocence that I find uh, very rare. Mm. It seems to be through her performance that you're able to return to a mode of filmmaking with her that I often think when I'm watching your films, which is sort of a connection to Eric Romer and, and his films in um, The Nouvelle Vague. And the certain sort of minimalism that you get from that. And I think that those kinds of conversations and the dialogues that you have in this film and in your other films, are so beautifully channeled by her, as you say, in a way that's quite different to perhaps how a mainstream audience might conceive of, of Leia. Is that something that you're, you're conscious of, in, 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 of a sort of Romerian comparison? 
I'm aware of the Homerian heritage that mm. that's part of my cinema. I, not that I was ever trying to imitate yeah. him in any way, but I'm just a huge admirer. And I guess uh, some of the ideas of his cinema or there is something about the sensibility of his cinema mm. that I, I don't know if I could say I made mine, but that at least I feel very connected to. And uh, the films of Romer, uh, they matter to me as much today as they did when I started making films. There are, there are still some kind of um, like an ideal of cinema to me. Homer is certainly a reference uh, for me. In the case of the actors of this film, I would say that mm. Melville Poupeau and Pascal Grigori are much more Romerian actors than Léa. I mean, this is why I'm asking this, because <laughs> they've both been in his because films. Because bo yeah. both have been in, in his films and they are, they are used to play characters who talk a lot, mm. whereas Léa is a... Actually, I, to me, she's more of a Bressonian actress. I know it sounds right, surprising sure. to say that, but she's a, she has difficulties with talking, Leah, and you can actually see that in the interviews. She's not necessarily at ease with analyzing, talking. Mm -hmm. She's very shy. She's very restrained. I try to show that face of her, actually, in the film. She doesn't, in the film, she hears, she listens to the others more than she right. talks herself. She's a very silent character mm -hmm. in some ways. And I think that aspect of her personality as an actress is something that I wanted to use in the film. Mm. She's a very shy person in, in some ways, Lea, which is surprising considering the kind of films that she's been in. Yeah, I think that, that that's such an interesting comparison of sort of Lea's acting style compared to someone like Pascal Gregory, who is in this film, the character who's sort of been talking about people like Thomas Mann and, and Franz Kafka and, and Kierkegaard throughout his life. And that sort of intellectualism is something more attached to him, perhaps, than, than yes. to Zondra. In terms of, of Pascal Gregory sort of portraying that character, what was the work working with him like for you in capturing that kind of the, the illness that he has? I've been an admirer of Pascal Gregory forever, and I always wanted mm. to work with him. And I'm thankful that I never had, I mean, keeping the chance to meet him through that part, which was, for me at least, quite magical, thanks to the kindness, patience, and modesty of Pascal, which really impressed me. I was worried that he would be terrified by this character being filmed in a position where you're seen as a very sick old man, you know, when Pascal is really the opposite. I mean, I don't know exactly how uh, how old he, he is, but I mean, mm. he's, he's just in, in such great shape, both physically and intellectually. And I was worried that he would be afraid of playing that kind of character, but it was the opposite. He was excited by it. To him, it was like a game in some ways, but where it was really extraordinary for me is because of how yeah, humble he was, mm. just listening, asking me to help him discovering this character, explaining him how he, uh, how he should be, how the sickness works. And he I mean, he trusted me completely. And that um, was a huge uh, uh, help for me. And so I think the, my relationship to Pascal was the most uh, peaceful re relationship I ever had with, a, with an actor when it could have been difficult. I mean, because it's an extremely difficult part Playing dementia for mm. an actor is probably the most difficult yeah. thing to do, you know, where pretending you're looking for your words is really tricky. It's easy to overact, you know, to, to overplay. Mm. And he, he, he 
he was never into something like a performance, you know, he was just being Georg, uh, he was deeply understanding who that character was, but he was never being too, I was worried that he, he, that the character would end up being too technical, mm. you know, I, I didn't want it to be too technical in the way we approach the disease. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much to Mia Hansen-Luver and Lillian for doing that interview. Uh, Mia actually came to a couple of picture houses whilst she was in town, Picture House Central and the Arts Picture House in Cambridge, where Lillian hosted a Q&A with her. I saw One Fine Morning also, and I really loved it. Uh, so I'm glad. Uh, I think I'm on the same page there with Ashanti and Victoria. Right, moving on, uh, another film that actually premiered at the Cannes Film Festival alongside One Fine Morning, Tarek Saleh's new film, Cairo Conspiracy. So let's pass over to Ashanti and Victoria to talk about that. Well, we watched a Cairo conspiracy, or as we might have known this before, right, Victoria? The Boy from Heaven is what we kind of knew this this film as. What are your thoughts on this? I've, I think I've only just drawn breath. I think it's such a tense thriller. We follow Adam, a student at a prestigious uh, religious university in Cairo, who becomes a pawn in a ruthless power struggle between Egypt's uh, religious and political elites as uh, an important political and religious appointment is about to be made. If you've ever seen any kind of sort of undercover thriller, any sort of espionage kind of thriller you'll know the tone here but it is i suppose pitched in an entirely different way that conflict between religion and the state is used to such good effect that i i I think it is just makes for such thrilling cinema and you've got adam at the center of this who is a very earnest very religiously serious young man drawn into a world of very shadowy figures and very dangerous situations what did you think wow this won the best screenplay at Cannes film festival for a good reason i would say because they have drawn us into a country that we don't get to experience very very much there's not much happening in terms of egyptian cinema as a whole and this is a a Swedish co-production and having been to Cairo myself I missed seeing actual Cairo because they they shot this all in Turkey in Istanbul so it didn't feel like Cairo watching it but the screenplay did draw us in and there were so many moments the moments of tenderness between these boys in the university the call to prayer when the boy is there and there are hundreds and thousands of people hearing him sing you get to see some some beautiful visuals but they did kind of circumvent showing us too much of actual Egypt there which I found a little little interesting I wondered if they couldn't actually shoot there but it it did take away from the story and like like you said Victoria this whole idea of a, a thriller being set and and seeing how 
it jumps from from kind of one person to another and the machinations that are going on all of that just really grab you and i have to say that this is a, a film that must be seen on the big screen just to kind of experience that and i i feel that the big screen experience allows you to draw into those subtitles and immerse yourself it's very different when you're sitting at home and the ability to go and grab some popcorn in this case you have everything and you're sitting in the cinema and you will not move from your seat because you want to know what happens and the whole idea of what have you learned is what is what this boy's question is at all times it's the question that he is being asked at all times and that's a question we ask ourselves every day so i felt that this is one of those films that will stay with you and like what you said victoria that you are still taking a breath from seeing it and that's exactly how you'll feel because it is very breathless the way they've created this screenplay absolutely and you know you said there it's not a world we're introduced to too often on the big screen i don't have too much knowledge of either the religious or the political side in that region but i think looking at the people and looking at the conflicts involved this is a story of someone's faith conflicting with duty conflicting with patriotism and as you say the calls to prayer seeing these young men and their very serious commitment to who they are to where they come from to where they're going and then uh, uh, Faraz Faraz the actor who plays Ibrahim uh, who is Adam's kind of handler and a very shadowy figure in all of this he's the guy in the doorway that knows everyone that's orchestrating everything kind of a puppet master i found that very unsettling in the best kind of way i suppose in that there is this very gentle and pious and earnest desire to learn in these young men and this dedication to faith being corrupted by political interest and that that conflict is very interesting to me Absolutely and I I feel that uh, Tafiq Barhom who plays Adam will be doing a lot more work. He he portrayed this role and he he lived it and breathed it and there's a lot more he can do and I I see him moving to Hollywood soon. I hope so. I'd like to see him a lot more on uh, the big screen whether that's uh, in Hollywood or with more sort of uh, Egyptian cinema. I should say that both One Fine Morning and Cairo Conspiracy both open on the 14th of April uh, at your nearest Picture House Cinema, both well worth seeing on the big screen. Really stunning pieces of work. And I totally agree with Victoria and Ashanti about Cairo Conspiracy. It is a proper edge-of-your-seat thriller, uh, and I had a great time watching it. Also out on the 14th is the new film from Makoto Shinkai, Suzume, the director of films such as Your Name and Weathering With You, and we're really thrilled to be playing his brand new film, Suzume, on the big screen. It's a proper spectacle, and uh, we've got Victoria and Ashanti reviewing Suzume, and then Makoto Shinkai was actually in town a couple of weeks ago and uh, stopped by the podcast for a chat with our film programmer Izzy McLeod. Izzy McLeod is our anime screenings expert. If you go to watch any sort of anime at Picture House Cinemas, it's very likely that Izzy has scheduled it. So thank you, Izzy, for bringing these films to the big screen. And yeah, thank you for stepping in and interviewing Makoto Shinkai as well. What a, what a great guest. So let's go to Victoria and Ashanti to hear about Suzume. <laughs>
Okay, so we've just seen uh, Suzumi. Ashante, what do you think? Well, Suzume, I mean, I'm going to say it like you'll hear it in the film. When when there's a the cutest cat uh, in the world in, in this beautiful Japanese anime, and the cat will say, Suzume, Suzume. <laughs> <laughs> and it will ring in your ears after seeing this absolutely stunning animation. I, I have to say, I didn't know a lot about Crunchyroll and the work that they'd been doing before I saw this film. And within the first 10 minutes, I was completely drawn into this story of Suzume, who is 17 years old. She's, you know, she's a high school, you know, young girl who's living with her aunt. And you find out very quickly that she has lost her mom at a young age. And this this story is somewhat a coming of age story in many ways, but it also takes you into a life of a girl who's trying to process what happened to her at a young age. And that, for me, completely, you know, drew me into this because here she is uh, on one one hand going to school and, you know, seeing these kind of beautiful sights. She bumps into a, a mysterious kind of young man. And then they have to prevent like disasters happening across Japan. But only they can see these disasters. Only they can see that world that's that's come to them. And it's all about the doors that you open. And, and you walk through them and what happens when you walk through that door and it kind of you know in, in some ways reminiscent there of something like sliding doors where you know that your fate could change just because you didn't take that one one train and that whole idea that the butterfly effect in many ways was was depicted there were many feelings of Alice in Wonderland also because again mysterious doors opening and closing and can I just say the vibrant colors on this I mean watch this and I keep talking about the big screen because I love the big screen experience and watching this on IMAX watching this on Picture House Central's screen one which is what a favorite of many of ours because of the sound there and the clarity of that screen and the width of that screen will give you some beautiful insights because you'll see all sorts of cute little things. You'll see some scary things. All of this will be shown shown onto the screen with very vibrant colors. And that's something that completely drew me in. Apart from just the fact that this storyline, again, is one that many of us can relate to in so many ways. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you said that about the big screen, because I do believe this is a film of enormous detail, a lot of enormous visual int- intricacy. There is so much imagery in there that you have to catch. It's told in the script, but it is also told through the visuals and the wonderful animation that it really just has to be seen on a screen uh, big enough for you to notice every little thing. I loved the story, as you say. It is something a lot of people go through, a lot of people can relate to. And I think cinema is at its best when it uses very artistic means to tell a story that uh, you can access quite easily. And um, I think that I'm by no means an expert on anime, but if it's a story that feels universal, that draws you into a new world very, very quickly. Oh gosh, yes, absolutely. It it really does, and like like you said, that this this word means a lot to me. That it's a new world. It's a new world that we have never seen, and we're used to a lot of animations coming from Pixar, etc. But seeing seeing this, the style of animation, you know, even even to the detail of 
how her nose looks, very different from what we would be used to seeing. But they, they gave us that in, in such a beautiful way. And I, I absolutely loved all the characters, including the little cat, I have to say, who says, Suzume. <laughs> it's just <laughs> one of the cutest things that, that, that you will see on screen. I, I guess it's it's one of those films that you might want to watch more than once. Absolutely. I think the sign of a very good animated film is a, uh, a small, usually animal sidekick that you just can't stop talking about. Yes. Yes, I'm still, I mean, that, that, that word, Suzume, 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 will always ring in my ears. I think it's going to take a while for me to forget that. <laughs> we can start by talking about your new film, Suzume, and if you could just introduce yourself and I guess how you would describe the film for someone. So a lot of our audience may have never seen an anime before, but if this was a film they were going to try it out on, how would you describe it to them? It's a my name is Makoto Shinkai and I am a director from Japan. I've been making animation now for 20 years. I started out making independent animation and then my work got bigger. And in 2016, uh, I made a film called Your Name, uh, which resulted in a lot more people coming to see my work. Um, and as a result of that, I assumed when I started making Suzume that a lot of people were going to come and see it. So I wanted Suzume to be a film that everyone could enjoy, from young children up to adults, uh, that there would, wouldn't be a dull moment in the film. I wanted it to be really entertaining, but at the same time, I wanted it to be, to be connected to real life. I wanted people to have a chance to think about society through this piece of entertainment. It's a, a Japan-based road movie, and it ties into all of the natural disasters that are on the rise in the world today. Natural disasters are a very ever-present possibility for people living in Japan, but also for people around the world. Uh, and so I want people to realise how that is connected to their own lives as they enjoy the road movie. Before the podcast, we mentioned the small documentary or interview you had about these, this disaster, particularly the Great East Japan earthquake and how that impacted sort of how you um, go about your work. And I think in the UK, as a small island, we take for granted the fact that we aren't earthquake prone here or have many uh, sort of natural disasters in the same extent. I was particularly struck about your tying of folklore with those disasters. I mean, in Suzume, but that magic realist edge, I think, carries through all your work. Do you sort of look to real life Japanese folklore and that historical cultural response to disasters that came before you when you sort of start your new work such as Suzume? You said that uh, the UK doesn't have uh, many natural disasters and I actually uh, spent some time living in London 15 years ago and what surprised me back then was that there was a tiny, tiny earthquake uh, when I was here. And the next day it was in the news, it was in the newspapers. Uh, and I thought, wow, that, that's how rare it is here to have an earthquake. I just thought it was a, a lorry going by outside the window. <laughs> Japan has a, a lot of earthquakes. You could almost say that, that, that it's constantly shaking. We find it hard to believe that our towns, the places we live, will still be around in 100 years' time. They might, they might be but there's a, a good chance that they'll be gone by then. Uh, and that's something that Japanese people live with. We have a very deep-rooted sense of, of impermanence. Uh, 
And we do have, as you say, all these legends like the one that involves a, a creature living under the Japanese archipelago that moves uh, and, and causes these earthquakes. And Suzume is made was made in this country, and so it connects those fantastical elements with the reality that we live. It does, yes. It seems there's a sort of oxymoron or something about the earthquakes both being this danger, but also what creates some of that most beautiful landscapes that you see both in the film and as inspired by you know the actual places in Japan. It'd be great if uh, to talk a little bit about the various locations. As you mentioned, it's a road trip. And I was wondering if you did your own road trip through Japan uh, to sort of start the journey with this film, or if you were drawing from sort of your memories of them instead. I did both of those things, really. I imagined the locations in my mind, and I also went on that journey to, to, to find the locations. It's based on the, the Great East Japan earthquake, uh, which... Just like Suzu, a lot of people born in Tohoku in the east of Japan, uh, when the earthquake happened and the subsequent Fukushima nuclear meltdown, a lot of people uh, had to leave their homes and moved west. That was something that really happened. Uh, Suzume is also born in Tohoku and now lives in Kyushu in the west. We, we follow her journey as she travels back east. So it needed to be a road movie um, for the story to work. Um, and I started off by imagining the route she might take from the west back east. Uh, and then, although it was during the pandemic, so not many of us could go, but a few of us uh, went on that journey from Kyushu, visiting different towns, taking different modes of transport, ferries, trains, cars, and mapped out that, that the, trip, the route that she would take. It seems um, no uh, road trip movie is complete without a, a good soundtrack, and there's quite a few songs that are played, both the non-diegetic, uh, the soundtrack that we the characters don't hear is gorgeous, but also the songs they choose to play sort of in the car in particular, both were sort of comedic and touching. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about making the choices for those songs, if you had choices straight away in mind, or if it was only came together later on in the journey. When I wrote the screenplay, there wasn't any music playing in the car. It was just a mode of transport for Suzume to get um, back to Tohoku. But when I did the storyboards, I thought there was something missing. And that's when I came up with the idea of the music for the road trip. Because, of course, when, you, when you're driving, you play music. And there was another important reason uh, for the music to be there. And that was because I wanted to show, and I needed to show, that this the world of Suzume is an extension of the real world. Because that scene comes right after the bit in Tokyo where you have the massive worm above Tokyo and it's very fantastical and it's like an action movie. But after that, I wanted people to start to realize that it's actually connected to the Great East Japan earthquake. And I wanted the audience to start realizing that this is actually set in the real world. And I did that through using these Japanese songs that all Japanese people are familiar with and people would start to go, oh, I know this one. I like that song and start to realize that the world of Suzume is actually connected to the real world. So just like in the real world, there was a, a huge earthquake in 2011, there was also this massive earthquake in, the, in Suzume's world in that year. In the same way, the music that we listen to in the real world also exists in, in Suzume's world. I think that real life connection is really what makes us film personal, despite its a sort of blockbuster size. And I really thank you for talking to us about it today. And I really hope people here in the UK as well still have that 
emotional connection and perhaps can learn something about the impact that this event has had on Japanese culture. Makoto Shinkai, a legend. So nice to have him on the podcast. Go and see Suzume on the big screen, first of all. But if you like it, there's a great back catalogue of Makoto Shinkai films out there. Do check out the anime section on the Pitch House website because we do try, where available, to bring uh, regular anime screenings uh, to your local cinema. Right, it's our final film review now. Another film that premiered at the Cannes Film Festival. There is a trend here. It's a really... Fun isn't the right word, but it is sort of darkly comic. And I think if you saw The Worst Person in the World, which came out about this time last year, and you enjoyed that, I think you will really like this film. It's called Sick of Myself. It is directed by Christopher Borgley. It's a romp. Is a romp the right word? I think it's a romp. Um, I found it very, very entertaining. It's a really tight runtime, just over 90 minutes. Uh, keeps you on your toes and a really, really interesting relationship between the two uh, central characters in here. But... Um, Hey, I'm not a film critic. Why am I explaining the film to you? Let's pass over to Ashanti and Victoria for our final film review for our April edition of the podcast. I have set it on the result of my results. And yes, it's a shocking thing. Did you see that? Did you see that? I don't want to Well, we've seen Sick of Myself. My gosh, this is a film that uh, is very, very, very interesting, isn't it, Victoria? Absolutely. It is. Gosh, how do you even introduce this film? It is a very dark comedy about the need, I suppose, the need to be seen uh, when that is taken to a very extreme level. We follow a young woman called uh, Sydney, whose boyfriend has become, I suppose, the toast of the art world, a experimental artist who is celebrated in magazines and in his, his world and getting a lot of attention that she perhaps becomes a little bit jealous of, shall we say, and so begins to resort to rather extreme methods to get the spotlight onto her. What do you say about this, Ashante? I mean, extreme is the word for it. Part of it is a tough watch, I have to say, because you, you know, you know that this is a mirror on society. You know people are doing things like this. We see this happening across social media, for example, and people are desperate to get the views and they will say anything and do anything. And this kind of brings it onto one big screen and <laughs> reminds you of, of, of almost what people are feeling inside is what they're showing. And you see this in her kind of her visuals. You see this in, in the tablets she takes and how she wants to turn into somebody who is a celebrity. She wants to become a celebrity in her own circles and in wider circles. And, you know, that kind of narcissism, which many of us have kind of noticed happening around us for sure, but to see it shown in this way, I have to say it was quite a surprising film for me in many ways, only 96 minutes. So it's quite a quick watch, but at the same time, a lot of difficult ideas that they that they communicated and the humor too i mean some people have have branded this a comedy but for me it felt more harrowing than actually it felt like human horror rather than actually a, a comedy in many ways and what can i say this is is one of those films that i think is a must watch for us to process what's going on in the world around us Mm, absolutely and as you say there are unsettling elements to it but i'd absolutely agree that 
I saw a lot of the world in the characters here. I think the comedy comes not only from perhaps the traditional kind of setup punchline, but from the ridiculousness of what unfolds, how ridiculous some of these characters are, even as Signe's situation becomes more desperate. Uh, her boyfriend, Thomas, is still self-absorbed, and you start to realise that everyone you're watching here is, in a sense, the villain of their own story, and as well as the hero. It is all about them. I think if you, you know, tap away at certain elements of society, that is at the very extreme end. It does speak to a lot of what is going on, social media, the desire, I suppose, to trend and be viral and all of that sort of stuff. It speaks to a lot of that and I suppose exposes it in a way that's maybe a little uncomfortable at times, but also, as you say, at a very brief and very swift running time, it, it just skips along and is, I suppose, quite compelling in, in some ways as you want to know how far down the rabbit hole, to continue the Alice in Wonderland analogy, it's how far down the rabbit hole this goes and how bad things can get. But I think well acted, well directed and an interesting concept. Certainly, certainly. I mean, I have seen another film with such a deep insight into psychology, into this modern psychology. And I'm very, very impressed that they were able to tap into that and showcase it in such a way. And certainly that human horror that it brings. It's not, I'm not a fan of horror films generally, but human horror seems to be something I'm now getting into. And there are more films that are showcasing this. And again, films are here to help us process the world around us. And I'm glad that we're getting films like Think of Myself. Mm, absolutely. And as you say, I'm with you in that sense that I'm very much a watch between my fingers horror watcher myself. But as you say, there there is a reason these films are here and they, they look at things that we might necessarily not process in everyday life and show a mirror to society, to the world. It does it really well and a different sort of movie for sure. And there we go. That is a wrap on our film reviews. Four fantastic brand new films coming to your local Picture House Cinema. I have only just noticed that they are four films not in the English language. It's a real international flavour to the April edition of our podcast. Lots of fantastic stuff to see. So I do hope you get a chance uh, to check those out. Now, as is tradition, whilst we had Ashanti and Victoria in the pod booth talking about cinema, we wanted to ask them what films are still on at your local picture house that they would recommend you go and see and what films are they most looking forward to coming to the big screen later in 2023? So we've uh, talked about what's coming up. Uh, Ashanti, what about the movies that are currently in cinemas? What's your pick? My pick is Air. It's one of the films that uh, I think it started the year for 2024 awards season. And it has Matt Damon in it playing a, a role that you will absolutely love him for. Ben Affleck, Jason Bateman, Marlon Wyans, Chris Tucker, Viola Davis. I mean, you know that they were looking at this saying, who do we pick? Who are the best people we can pick to play these roles? It is a film all about the Air Jordan. So it's uh, uh, one of those pop culture things that many of us grew up around. And it has a blitzing soundtrack to go with it, which I can highly, highly, highly recommend. 
How about you, <laughs> Victoria? What what have you been watching, and what do you recommend that's still in cinemas? My pick for what's still in cinemas is Creed Three. Uh, Michael B. Jordan's it's his third round as Adonis Creed. Again, going up against a figure from his past. He's behind the camera as well as in front of it, and I think a very interesting director has been introduced in this movie. It follows the Rocky slash Creed formula to a T. So I suppose, is it the most dynamic film in the world? No, but it is a formula that works and he brings his own flourishes to this very well-trodden path quite brilliantly. A lot of visual cues, a lot of personal elements brought into what's on the screen. And also we'll look at things like mental health and uh, disability that I find quite refreshing for a big budget Hollywood blockbuster. Well worth checking out. 100%. The, the male vulnerability that they showcased so well totally stole my heart. So I'm with you on that one. Well, Victoria, what are you looking forward to? I mean, this year is filled with some really interesting releases. Absolutely. And uh, what I'm looking forward to most is Killers of the Flower Moon, which is in cinemas from October. I love Martin Scorsese, and he brings a really intriguing murder mystery crime thriller to the big screen. Once again, working with Leonardo DiCaprio, I think every time they get together, it's magic and a very intriguing period drama. It's set in the 20s. Also, Brendan Fraser, the man of the moment, the Oscar winner, is also brought into the cast in a role that I think will bring more of the kind of uh, depth of performance that we saw in The Whale. He's working with the right filmmaker to bring out these excellent performances. Leonardo DiCaprio, I think, is always worth watching, particularly when he's working with those tremendous directors. And uh, I can't wait to see that. How about you? What are you looking forward to? Oh, gosh. So my story actually goes back to Picture House Central's Screen One, which is my favorite screen to do Q&As at, to watch Q&As at, and to, 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 to do viewings. You might have guessed from listening to this podcast so far. And I'm picking Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse because when Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out, and that was an epic feat of filmmaking in terms of how they showed comic book to animation come to life, I met Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who actually finished their Q&A, came down and spoke to us. And I just thought, wow, this is such a moment. And the, you know, this film has been delayed a bit. We've been waiting a long time to see this film. So this summer can't come soon enough. But to see, you know, Shamik Moore coming back as Miles Morales, the first black Spider-Man, which is wonderful. And Hayley Steinfeld, she, she she cannot go wrong in, in my book. She's fabulous. And to get this version of Gwen Stacy is just super, super, super exciting. And is a raise going to be in it. Daniel Kaluuya is going to be in it. Brian Tyree Henry is going to be in it. You know, this is this is a cast that is just absolutely dreamy. Oscar Isaac, also, I mean, wow, I cannot wait to see this. And also, there's a, a connection. I'm South Asian, and you know, Karan Sony coming in as Prithvir Prabhakar, who is Spider-Man India, who's going to be in this Spider Force. This just blows my mind, and I just can't wait to see this on the big screen more than once for sure. Absolutely, uh, it's the. First- movie is i suppose considered by many to be the best 
Spider-Man movie. It, it's something that I suppose was meant as a spin-off from the main live-action movies, but really established itself in its own right. And I'm with you. I can't wait to see it. Well, Victoria, while we say goodbye, I've got to ask where we can find you. What's your latest stuff that's going on? Well, you can find me every week if you're in London in uh, City AM. I'm the film editor for there, and you'll find my reviews there. You'll also find them on cityam.com. You can also find everything I'm doing at Online. victorialuxford.com or on Instagram at v. L film. How about you, Ashanti? Where can we find you? So I am Ashanti Omkar, A-S-H-A-N-T-I-O-M-K-A-R, everywhere. <laughs> Basically, if you type it into Google, you will find me. I am a very, very active on social media. I go to lots of interactive experiences as well as broadcast about film, TV, and culture. And you'll hear me on BBC Sounds. You'll hear me on Times Radio, on Monaco Radio, and see me on television also from time to time on Sky TV, sometimes on BBC, ITV, Channel 4. So keep keep tabs on me by just typing in Ashanti Omkar and you will find a plethora of stuff. And that brings us to the end of another edition of The Love of Cinema. First of all, a big thank you to our guest film critics, Victoria Luxford and Ashanti Omkar. You just heard it there, but do check out their work whether it be online or in print. Both are two people definitely worth a follow on social media. I must also say a big thank you to our interviewers, Lillian Crawford and Izzy McLeod, who spoke to directors Mia Hansen-Louv and Makato Shinkai uh, about their respective films. Uh, I'd love to hear them talk about each other's films. That would be Maybe that's for another podcast. Uh, but yeah, really stacked edition of the show uh, this month. We also could not make this show without Kobe at Stripped Media. Thank you for all of the production support, Kobe, and all of the work uh, you put into making this happen. And Maddie Searle, our superstar editor, thank you for assembling. Uh, we had lots of bits of audio this month from interviews and, and everything, so appreciate that, Maddie. And the final thank you goes to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe. Uh, it's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, basically. Uh, give us a follow or a subscribe, whatever your podcatcher allows, if you feel compelled. Uh, a little star rating, five stars, hopefully, and a review does wonders for the show also. And as well as doing these monthly wrap-ups of uh, some of the key sort of highlights coming to your local picture house, if you subscribe, we also have interviews occasionally with visiting filmmakers, actors, etc. as they come available. Uh, so it's not just a monthly drop. We, we often put out three or four pods a month. Sometimes the filmmakers' schedules are a little bit erratic, so it's sort of hard to plan those ones in advance. But if you subscribe, I promise you, there will be pods in between these monthly reviews. And uh, if you just want to hear the monthly review shows, that's also fine. Our next one will be out in May. And oof, May is absolutely stacked. There are some wonderful films coming out then. But anyway... Let's not get ahead of ourselves. If you go to the cinema in April, do let us know what you watch. You can find us at Picture Houses. That's at Picture Houses on social media, such as Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Hey, we're also on TikTok now, if you're that way inclined. And you can check all of the Picture House film listings at picturehouses.com. I've been Sam Clements. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great time at the cinema. Cinema.